Well, good morning, church. Welcome to Sojourn. Glad you're here to worship with us. Each week we turn to God's Word, knowing that it's not by bread alone that the people of God live. It's the very Word of God that forms us as people. It's the very Word of God that forms us as a new people. And it's the Word of God that fuels us forward as His people, living under His good reign and His good rule. We've been working through the book of Proverbs And the first nine chapters kind of can go together in different segments, and then after that we go to different uh, topics because Proverbs go from thought to thought very, very quickly. Today we're going to cover a a prominent theme through Proverbs, and that is the addressing of emotions. Perhaps God has providentially placed this one, didn't do this originally with the intent of this, but right around graduation, school ending, and Memorial Day might be a proper time to do this. And there's no doubt that we need help in this area, right? All you got to do is, is go to a Little League baseball game, watch the crowd long enough, watch the dugouts long enough, and you'll know, like, we're confused here. We don't know what, how to handle this well. All, all you have to do is, is probably check your phone records of emojis and emoticons and find out, like, we're confused here. Like We need help. We need wisdom in this area. And so that's what we're going to ask God do through the book of Proverbs this morning. So would you pray with me? God, we need your help. We need you to inform us. We need you to instruct us. We need you to bring wisdom to our folly. And so God, we're, we're trying right now. We're asking for your help for us to put our emotions under your lordship to surrender them to you. Our breath is not our own. It's been bought. Our bodies are not our own. They've been bought. Our emotions are not our own. They've been bought. So God, would you help us to live as redeemed people, even with how we think about and control, restrain and release our emotions. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. The very opening pages of the scripture contain emotion. God creates the world, and he looks at what he's created, and what does he do? He calls it good. He starts delighting. He delights in what he has made. There's delight in God. God is this God who who has emotions. He has delight. He has pity. He has compassion. He has wrath. He has judgment. He has mercy. He has love. All of these things are, are within God. He's a God who has emotions. And so then it it just funnels down from there to his creation, his image bearers. Those people who are made in the image of God, which is all of us, are to reflect our good creator God with our emotions. You see this on the opening pages of Scripture in regards to humanity. God creates Adam and then he creates a helper for Adam. And he presents her, walks her down the aisle and presents her to Adam. And what does Adam do? He begins to delight as well. Like God didn't have to create that in him. He already created it in him before that this capacity to delight and have emotion and respond to what God had created with emotion. And so he just says, bone of my bones. He starts delighting in what God has given. And so in, in humanity, emotions are parts because we are bearing the image of this God who is a God who has emotions. And so all of us here are image bearers and all of us have emotions, even if you think you're the most grizzled and hardened, per- most hardened person here, like, it's in you. You can try to deny it or try not to show it, but it's there. And likely all I have to do is just put you in a room with a, a TV and a football game with your favorite team to find that out. There will be yelling, there will be sadness, there will be anxiety, they, all those things. Like, there's this thought that like men are less emotional than women, and then you, like, you put them in a football game, it's like... I'm not sure that's true, but I think that we all need wisdom. You put food in front of us, and I'm going to find out that you have emotions, right? It's like, there's joy there. There's happiness or sadness, depending on what's in front of you. And the, and the thing is that these emotions are, are part of God's original creation. They're good. They bring color to life. They enhance life. They enrich the experience that in this world that God has given us to know him and enjoy his creation. And part of what he has given us to do that and the, the greater capacity to know and love and delight in the things he, is our emotions. And so they're good. But our emotions, unlike God's, are fallen. And the fall reaches every single area, every aspect of our lives, including the internal life of every single human being 
including our emotions. Our emotions are created good, but then they're fallen. They go awry. They go astray. They're not as they should be. The very early pages of Scripture reflect this as well. After the fall, you see these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain gets jealous. He gets angry at his brother Abel. And instead of ruling over his emotions, he surrenders to them and kills his brother. And so since the fall, all image bearers, all of us, have needed wisdom on emotions. And wisdom speaks. Wisdom speaks to our emotions, and what it calls for is both a restraint of them and a release of them, depending on what's going on in around us. So what wisdom calls for, restraint and release, is, is right control of our emotions. Handling them rightly, taking ourselves in hands and our emotions in hands rightly. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32 says this, that whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Another translation of this is those who control their emotions are better than those who can capture a city. Think about it. What's better? What's mightier? What's even more victorious than one who can conquer a city? The Proverbs tells us one who can control his spirit, he can control his emotions. Wisdom says you can capture a city. Big deal. Can you handle your emotions? Can you control those? Do you have a handle on that? Proverbs verse, or chapter 25, verse 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city that's broken into. So here's kind of the, the image a little bit in reverse. Left without walls. And so wisdom is, is calling for control in regards to our emotion. Control. Not suppression. Not surrender to your emotions. We're not to suppress our emotions and to stifle them, to shut off feeling and be the frozen chosen people of God. We're not to be robotic. But neither are we to surrender to our emotions and just do what feels right. Be free spirits and just go along with the breeze. Few authors say it well when they say that he, God, didn't create our emotions to be paramount, but neither should they languish on the sidelines of our humanity. God gave us emotions as a good gift to be appreciated and employed in balance with, other, with our other faculties. Our wisdom calls for that proper placement of our emotions in our lives. And so you can think about riding in a car. If, if you're a family, if you have young children, like they belong in the car, right? They're part of your family. You want them to go where you go. You take trips together. You do things together. Like they belong there. It's okay for them to be there. You don't need to make them walk everywhere. They can ride in the car with you. But it's not okay for them to sit in the driver's seat. Right? They can't be driving. Like there's a good reason why we make people wait at least 16 years before they can get in the driver's seat. Because if you put them in the driver's seat, there's danger, right? You don't stuff them in the trunk. That's dangerous too. You don't stifle them and stuff them in the trunk in case you're wondering, don't stick your kids in the trunk. But also don't put them in the driver's seat. You don't do either one. They can belong in the car. That's a good place, safe place for them, but don't stuff them in the trunk and don't put them in the driver's seat. And the same goes with emotions. Emotion is part of our makeup as people, right? We are created to reflect and image our God. It's part of us, but it's not to be driving our lives and they're not to be just stuffed in the back as if they don't exist and shouldn't come out at all. Emotions are not bad and to be suppressed and stifled or disregarded in any way. That's dangerous. Right? You could kill a child by stuffing him in the trunk. It's also dangerous to let him drive. One author says this, that to be sure that human feelings can never be completely stifled. If they are forbidden their normal course, like a river, they will cut another channel through the life and flow out to curse and ruin and destroy. We could try to suppress and stifle and disregard our emotions, but we do it at our own peril. So suppressing them is not the answer. That's not wisdom, but neither is surrender, right? You don't put them in the driver's seat. They are not the ultimate thing to be surrendered to. That's the child driving. And if you put a child in the driver's seat on a busy street, you know what's going to happen. There's damage that's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. So emotions are good. They're a good gift. They need right restraint and right release. Some of them need to be released. Some of them need to be restrained. We need wisdom in how to deal with that because emotions are, are a good gift from God that help us image Him. And they help us. Right? Emotions can help us know that something is off. Something's wrong. Something has gone wrong here. Emotions can indicate that for us. They can also show us and remind us that something is as it should be. Like, that's good. That's how it ought to be. That's, that's how God made it to be. 
There's this natural instinct to react to something with, with maybe like reacting to evil, with, with anger. That's good. Something's wrong there. That's not how things are supposed to be. And that emotion can come up in you in a good way. They can do the same thing with things that are good. We see something beautiful. Mountains were filled with awe, joy, delight. Like That's good. It's like God did something really good there. And so emotions help us recognize these things. That's a good gift from God. But I think more importantly, emotions show us on the ground, in our everyday life, in our every moment, what we most value. They're indicating something to us. Our outbursts of emotions show on the ground, every day, they see what we value most. They show us what might be hard to see otherwise. What we care about, what we treasure, what we love the most. Emotions are kind of like a person you've probably seen a million times in the last couple of weeks. They're like the weatherman. Right? The weatherman is just reporting what's going on out there. He's saying, like, here's, here's what's out there, and he's just telling it to you. Emotions are doing that. It's like, here's what's going on inside of you. They're telling you what's out there. They're telling you what's ahead. Like, there's a storm there. It's sunny here. Like, they're telling you what's going on internally in ways. They say, here's what the weather is. Here's what's going on with our hearts. And so with each emotion that's felt, that's shown, that comes out of us, we need to start asking questions. We need to keep pushing the why button. Why did I do that? Why did I react that way? What is going on with that? What was I valuing? What did I want? Why did I want it so badly? And on and on. We need to push that button so we can see what do we value most? What do we love the most? And sometimes for us as fallen creatures with very mixed emotions, some good, some bad, mixing and all intermingling together, sometimes the answers aren't clear, but it can still be revealing to us. Emotions are meant to flow from our fear of God, our awe of God, our trust of God, our desire to live under His good reign and good rule because the ultimate value is is knowing God. He is the thing we're to value and love and cherish the most and we're to live in honor of Him and so all of our emotions are to flow from that. And when they're off is when they're not flowing from that. And Proverbs speaks of this. In a fallen world, our emotions, they need right restraint and right release. They don't just need release. They don't just need restraint. They need control. They need both. And while there are many emotions that are spoken of in Proverbs, we don't have enough time for all that could be said. Even the four that I'm going to go through, you need more time. Spend time in your groups with these as well. There are a few that are prominent that we'll speak of. And the first one is jealousy. Now again, we're, we're meant to image God with our emotions. Jealousy can be a good emotion. Jealousy is a passionate zeal for something, like a a demanding of something. There can be passionate zeal and demanding of good things. God is often called a jealous God. In other words, he's passionate about a few things. He's passionate about his glory. He's passionate about holiness. He's zealous for something. He demands something. He demands worship, right worship of him as the one true living God. He demands these things. He's a jealous God. He doesn't want people going after idols. We see that God is like this in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, God is giving the law, the Ten Commandments specifically. And this is what it says in verse 4. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You can see the connection of of God's jealousy and idolatry really, really early. Our emotions could be revealing. They're they're telling the story. Here's what's out there. Here's a few idols that you need to keep watch on. And God says he's jealous. He doesn't want us to go after those idols. He wants us to love and honor and worship him alone. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I'm the Lord, that's my name. My glory I give to no other. That's jealousy. My praise, I don't give to idols. And so we can reflect that in a good way. There can be good, godly jealousy. But what Proverbs does so well for us is it reminds us that we live in a created world, a world that we're, there's some good, but that is also fallen. And so we need wisdom in every area under the sun, and Proverbs brings some of that to us. It takes the sinful nature into consideration when it speaks of jealousy. And so in Proverbs chapter 27, We see jealousy kind of bent toward the self. 
Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4. It says, wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? That's quite the company, right? Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? This is a strong description of the destructive nature of jealousy. If it's bent toward ourself, if it's unleashed and unbridled, this is what it can do. It can destroy. And so Proverbs is implying that we need to restrain this. We need to handle it rightly. Jealousy can be a self-destroyer too when it's turned inward. Chapter 14, verse 30. says that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy or jealousy makes the bones rot. Envy and jealousy make the bones rot. Now, one author says that to envy is to want someone else's life. It's to feel just, not just that they don't deserve their good life, but that you do and God hasn't been fair. Jealousy is, is often the reaction of something not that's bad, but something that's good. And I think that that makes it particularly dangerous. Because when we look at something, we see that it's good. That's an emotion coming up in us that's, that's actually right. That's good. That's how it ought to be. But then our sinful nature can easily take something good, assess it wrongly, handle it wrongly, and take us to a place where our bones will rot. Sinful jealousy reveals what? What we're valuing. That we value something. And if it's sinful jealousy, it's saying we're valuing something wrongly. And that will destroy us. That will rot our bones out. It's like bone cancer. It deteriorates. Detrimentally breaks down vital material. Leaving us with no structure with which to hold ourselves up. Remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph had the the love of his father Jacob. The favor, even the sinful favor of his father Jacob. The love of a father, the favor of a father, those aren't bad things. Those are good gifts. Those reflect God himself who loves his creation, who loves his children. And Joseph had that. His brothers saw that he had that in a little bit different way than they did. They saw like love and favor from their father. That's a good thing. And they wanted it. And they wanted it sinfully. And in Genesis chapter 37, verse 11, it says they were jealous of him. And you know what they did next? They threw him in a pit. (laughs) They sold him into slavery. They lied about his death. I mean, they tried to cancel him out in almost every possible way they could in his life. It consumed them and brought their family toward apart. Their desire for a good thing, taken wrongfully, rotted their bones. Saul, he's this king for the Israelites, but there's this rising star after Saul disobeyed God, and his name is David. And he starts doing all these things, and people are noticing that David is doing a lot of really good things. And so they recognize Saul, he kills his thousands, he's delivering us from our enemies, but David is killing his ten thousands. And Saul didn't like that much. It consumed him. His kingship became defined not so much by his reign and rule and how it was directed toward outward and inward, you know, being righteous before God, taking care of God's enemies, but his pursuit of David and taking him out consumed him. And the same potential is in us. It can be stoked when we see someone at the gym who's running way farther, lifting way more than us, looks way better than us doing it. It can be stoked by a picture on social media where we think that's the life that I actually want. It can be stoked by even just looking across the lawn at your neighbors and being like, that grass, I wish that was my grass. There's any number of ways. And we live in a time of just constant connectivity, where you can see things that you couldn't see before. You're constantly connected to other people in other ways. And so it makes this this temptation towards sinful comparison so easily and readily available that we need to beware of jealousy, all the time on watch that our hearts aren't seeing something that's good and wanting it in a sinful way. This constant comparison in our lives, even of the good of others and good things in the lives, can breed jealousy in us, can rot our bones out. You see, if we'll sin to get something, or if we'll sin if we don't get something, whatever that thing is, is an idol. And jealousy that rises about that thing is telling on us. 
It's reporting the news on us. And it's saying there's something off here. You value something wrongly. Showing us what we value. And as sinners, what we need to do is we need to make sure that we rightly control, we rightly restrain jealousy in our lives. Thinking about it rightly. Because that is telling us what we value. It's possible in our lives that some of us have jealousy, have jealous emotion for good things, right things, the way that God does. That we, are, we care about, we're passionate about the glory of God, faithfulness to His Word, all those things. It's, we can have that. That's true. But my guess for most of us is that our jealousy, even if it is good, is often mixed with some unrighteous jealousy. And I'd probably say that for all of us, it's mixed at best. And so we need to beware. Even jealousy in our lives that we want to label righteous jealousy, we need to beware. Take warning that we don't let that go unchecked because there might be a lot more than just righteous jealousy within that. We need to be careful that we're not believing an ancient lie that Adam and Eve heard in the garden that you won't surely die. We need to be aware that we're not hearing that and believing that lie when we're thinking about the things that we're jealous over. It'll rot our bones out. Something described as strongly as Proverbs describes jealousy needs to be controlled, needs to be thought of, needs to be checked. But also, on top of jealousy, we move to anger. Anger needs to kind of be put in the same category as well as, as one of these emotions that most often needs to be restrained. You see, there is a wise way to deal with anger. Anger is this, this feeling of distress, of, of turmoil, of trouble, of even hatred. It's a response in us that says, I'm against that. I don't like that. And the capacity of anger reminds us that humans, once again, we image God who is just. There are some things that we should disagree with that that are wrong. We should say, I'm not okay with that. I'm against that. That's reminding us that we live in a world who is ruled by a just God. He made things to work a certain way. And so it can be, again, a good emotion. A few authors say this. You were made in the image of God himself, and that means that you were made to see the world as he sees it, to respond as he responds, to hate what he hates. Yes, to hate what he hates, and to be bothered by what brings him displeasure. Anger can be this right emotion in us that looks out and says, that's wrong. That's not okay. That's what God does. That's how we can image him rightly. That's what he does with sin. He looks at sin and says, that's wrong. That's not okay. And there's this righteous anger in him. Not too long after he gave them the law in the book of Exodus, you know that Moses is up with God receiving this law from God's own hand and that the Israelites so quickly turned their hearts away from the God who had just redeemed them and pulled them out of slavery in Egypt. And so while God is talking to Moses on the mountain, the Israelites are making an idol. The thing that he was saying, I'm jealous that you not do this. That's what they were doing. And as Moses comes down, the anger of God is described. It speaks of his burning anger, Exodus 32, his hot wrath. This is righteous and holy anger and wrath. There is such a thing and God has it. And this can be reflected in his image bearers, that we can burn hot of the things God burns hot about. We can be angry about the things that God is angry about. That should make us think about our sin, right? God hates sin. So maybe we should be angry at our own sin and not so angry at the things externally first, but we can reflect this. But post-fall, after the fall, after we have these sinful natures, anger can, likely will, go bad. I mean, is that obvious, right? Anger is going to go bad. It can and probably will go bad in our lives. And so wisdom warns us. Proverbs warns us. If you look in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Uh, there's no middle ground. If you're going to be hasty to your temper. You're exalting folly. You're saying, folly's the way. This is a great thing to do. It's a foolish statement. This warning is a warning to be slow to anger, and it's often repeated in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and in his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, to his anger, but a wise man quietly holds it back. 
Proverbs chapter 29, verse 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression, and we could have done more. Fools unleash their anger. They let it drive them. They put it in the driver's seat, and they let it cause all sorts of damage. Fools' anger, it stirs up strife, it says. Strife with those around them. It stirs up sin, sin within their relationships around them. If there's a lot of strife and a lot of sin around you, you might check to see if you don't have some anger that's unchecked, that's unrestrained in your life. If not, some foolish anger has taken hold and is the cause of these things. Start asking why. Why is there so much strife? Why is there so much sin all around me all the time? Maybe it's me. Maybe it's my own sin. It doesn't have to be, but it's possible. Start asking questions of yourself. Wisdom's consistent appeal is to be slow to anger, to hold it back. It even says maybe even overlook an offense. That's what you could do. You could be angry at that, but why don't you just overlook it sometimes? Just let it go. See, the wise person is not a person who never gets angry. A wise person is a person who is slow to get angry. The wise person is a person who's not a hothead. He's not someone that everyone else has to tiptoe around because they're scared that he's going to blow up at any time. Fools do that. Fools are hulkish. Hulk-like? Hulkish? And, and the Incredible Hulk, he's a great character, right? But you start cheering for him, to, like you want him to get mad. Like, I don't, I don't care about him normal. I want him to get mad so I can see him like, get really big and green and like destroy stuff. Like, that's what I want to see. He is a great character, but he's a fool. Now, don't tell him I said that, right? But... He's a fool. He, he reveals his secret in one of the Avengers movies. He says, you know, like, here's my secret. I'm always angry. And then he, you know, gets mad and gets green and big. Like, that's, that's foolish. He's a fool. Now, maybe we don't turn green in rage. But what do our lives show about us? Are we slow to anger? Or are we fools who just give vent to our anger? Are we controlling and rightly restraining our anger as Proverbs instructs all who are wise to do? Or are we just letting it go unchecked? There's a helpful book written by David Pallison called Good and Angry, and he lists in there six common wavelengths within the spectrum of bad anger, sinful anger, that I think are helpful for us to just look at briefly. The first one he lists is irritability in anger is anger on a hair trigger, or a hothead ready to blow up at any time. Arguing is the disagreeable, he said, she said, of interpersonal friction. Bitterness expresses how anger can last a long, long time. It might be simmering and low, but if it's there, that's anger, and it's sinful anger. Violence. This one seems obvious, right? It expresses the sheer destructiveness of angry behavior. Passive anger. It hides behind the surface, surface appearances and even beneath conscious awareness at times. Self-righteous anger enjoys the empowering sense of grievance, of getting in touch with honest emotion and expressing it freely. Irritability. Arguing, bitterness, violence, passive anger, and self-righteous anger. Are any of those characterizing our lives? Maybe one of those. Maybe a few of them. Now, these are modes, methods, train tracks of sinful anger. Now, our sinful anger, it's doing what emotions do. It's revealing something about us. Here's what you truly love. That's why you got mad at it. Why did you get mad? Why did you get so furious about that thing? What is it? Why did you want it so badly? There's something there. You're valuing something wrongly. You're loving something wrongly. There's an idol probably at play here. And so what is our anger reporting about us? What is our anger at the kids who make a mess in the kitchen telling us? Right, maybe it's like, oh, I want control, and I can't control this, and so I get mad about it. What's well, telling you? You think that you're sovereign. Now, so what is our anger telling us about it? What is that coworker who cannot get the procedure down? What is it telling about us when we get angry at him? What is it revealing that we value? That anger that we have is declaring what we love most, where our trust lies, who we love. And we need to listen to the report, and we need to correct. Pallison goes on to say that each of these six problems matters hugely. Anger flares too quickly alienates too many relationships, burns too long, causes too much pain, hides too well, and feels too good. And wisdom speaks. And it says, be slow to anger. Be slow to anger. Control. Restrain. It doesn't have to be this thing that stirs up sin and strife in your life and in the lives of people around you. Be slow to anger. 
So there's a few, I think, that are a little bit more likely in our lives to need to be restrained. I'm going to give a few that I think a little bit more likely to need to be released in our lives. Because wisdom doesn't just look stiff and like all business-like all the time. Like, got to restrain my anger, got to restrain jealousy, so I'm just a restrained person all the time. That wouldn't reflect God. Who rejoices, right? He rejoices in his people. He rejoices in his creation. He rejoices in the things that are good. He calls them good. He delights in them. He rejoices. As his mission goes forward, he rejoices. As his glory spreads, he rejoices. God rejoices. He's not robotic. He's not stiff all the time. He's not like, I don't have any fun up here. I mean, there's a business approach to this. No, he has these good emotions too that we think of and that we can reflect in a good way. Wisdom and walking in the fear of the Lord is living the good life. And the good life is life that doesn't just need restraint all the time. Some of it needs to be released. Right? The good life is a life with a glad and cheerful heart. And so we think about cheerfulness in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 15, verse 13, A glad heart or cheerful heart makes a cheerful face, but sorrow of heart, the spirit, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is crushed. Verse 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. I love that imagery. The cheerful heart, continual feast. That's like, that's all I've ever dreamed of right there. Continual feast. Good food laid before you all the time. There's, you, you see what they're getting, the, the image that he's conjuring up here. This is like, this is deep satisfaction. Now, you're never hungry. You're always feeling good. You always have everything that's really good right within reach. That's a continual feast. That sounds really good. It's deep satisfaction. It doesn't pass quickly. I mean, it's, it's good. It's powerful. That's why the opposite is talked about being crushed in spirit. So you can be cheerful in heart or crushed in spirit. Like the opposite seems pretty strong. And so, so should then cheerful of heart. It's a strong term. It's a continual feast. This gladness of heart, it, it brightens the face. It lightens the load. It's something that, as it says, it comes out on the face. It, it can't even be contained inwardly. Like if you have a glad heart, like it comes out. Like your, your frown turns upside down. Like that's, that's what's going on here. It gets out some way, and it's showing on your face in some capacity, right? And the assumption is that, that, that this is what right relationship, this is what fear of the Lord produces. It produces this glad and cheerful heart, this gladness in you that can't be explained any other way. That those who fear the Lord aren't left empty, grumpy, downhearted, not all the time. They are left lightened, brightened, cheered, glad-hearted. Notice this is the, the second one, or this is the second and third one we've done. And every time there's this inward component and this outward, you know, reflection of it. Right? So here we have like this, this reflection on the face. A glad heart, it brightens the face. Before we talked about one who is jealous, it rots the bones. Like there's there's actually, I think, physical components to that. Like you physically are are unhealthier than you would be otherwise. And so there's there's these emotions, this eternal life. It matters not just internally, but externally as well. Like there's a connection there. The bones are affected, the, the face, uh, things are affected from inside out. This happens with the good and with the bad. You can see sorrow is listed here. Sorrow in the heart. Well, that comes out too. And crushed in spirit that's listed in chapter 15 sounds a lot like what we would call depression. Deep depression. Crushed. Like you feel like you're in this state where you you can't get out of it. You're you're completely crushed. It reminds us that, that this isn't a new thing. This has been a common temptation for humanity since the fall, that we haven't discovered depression in our scientific age. This is something that people dealt with and that the wisdom speaks to. Like there are people who are crushed in spirit. There, there's so much sorrow in their hearts. But here's what wisdom also says, is that those who fear God aren't characterized by that. They aren't characterized by it. Do they dwell there at times? Oh yeah. Look at the lives of people in Scripture over and over again. We're going to look at one of the Psalms. Look at Elijah. He goes on the top of Mount Carmel. He destroys the prophets of Baal. And then he says, God, kill me now. It's like, you just won. You won. Like, you, you just took him head on. And God revealed himself greatly. And now you want to die? Like, he felt crushed in his spirit. It's ever-present. Did he dwell there at times? Yes. But was it home? Was it home? Is it home for the people of God? And the wisdom says, no. They're the ones who have some cheerfulness in their hearts. They're glad in their hearts. They might dwell in this sorrow for a time, but it's not home for them. Not in the long run. In chapter 42 and 43 of the Psalms, you remember this, like, why are you in despair, my soul? 
Right, th- these two psalms kind of go together. They're almost like they're one psalm. So chapter 42 and 43, there's this wrestling with God. Where are you, God? Why is this happening? We, we know some of these phrases, and they don't seem as strong as they need to seem. Like, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. We think, oh, that's great. The deer's panting for water. No, like the deer is dying. Like, he needs water to live. That's what the psalm is saying. Like, as the deer pants for the water, it's about to die. It needs to find water, or it's going to fall over, and it's the end. And that's what the psalmist is reflecting internally. Like, I need some answer. Why? I have no hope, and I'm about to shrivel up and die. All those waves and breakers have gone over me. That's not like, great, I, got, I took a nice shower and, like, fresh water. and it ref- No, he's like, I felt like I was dead. Waves and breakers just crashed on me, and I thought it was over. This is the experience of the people of God. There's a wrestling here that's full of overwhelming anxiety, but there's a turn. And it's in chapter 43, verse 3. There's been a repeated, why are you in despair, my soul? Hope in God. He's trying to talk to himself to hope in God. But then here's what he says. He, he speaks to God, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Oh, then, then I will go. See, the, the, almost the resolve. I'm going to do this. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, who is what? My exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. Oh, God, my God, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you a turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There are times when we're going to be like, why am I in despair? And where are you in the middle of this, God. Like, I feel like a deer panting for water and I can't find a stream. What is happening? That's being crushed in spirit. That's sorrow of the hearts. But there is a light that is sent that leads us to God, our exceeding joy. Is God your exceeding joy? Is God your exceeding joy? For those who walk in the fear of the Lord, they can be glad even when waves and breakers crash over them because, because God is their exceeding joy. And he's alive. He's doing just fine. And if our connection, our connection to him is vital and he's doing just fine, then I think we'll be fine too. That's what the psalmist is getting at. I can hope in God. He's living. I'm going to praise him again because he has promised that he's going to be with me, that he's going to take care of me. I can remind myself of all these things. Send out your life. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. And then I'm going to go. I'm going to go to God, my exceeding joy. Is God your exceeding joy? See, cheerfulness in the face of overwhelming anxiety, waves and breakers that are crashing over can reveal what we ultimately treasure. And for the psalmist, it was revealing his ultimate treasure as he directs all of his anxiety, all of his crushedness to God is revealing this is my treasure. It's God. I, I don't seem to be able to find him. I can't have hope, but my treasure is God. I'm going to turn it to him. That's what he's doing. We need to do the same. It can reveal our ultimate treasure because God is doing just fine. And if God is our treasure, if God is what we love, if God is what we're after, then we can hope in God no matter the situation because we know him and he's alive and because we know the end, right? He's going to win because we trust in him as God over all. Are you crushed in your spirit? Are you full of sorrow? That might be revealing. That might show you what you ultimately love. Maybe that God isn't your exceeding joy. Maybe that you are trusting and loving and valuing something more than God. That is a grace. Just like that song we sang. I asked the Lord and he showed me some stuff. Maybe your sorrow and being crushed in spirit is revealing some things. And that's gracious of God to do that. And the good news is, is that you don't need to stay crushed. Another psalm, Psalm 34, says that God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. So if you're crushed and full of sorrow, maybe God isn't your exceeding joy. Maybe he's not really what you value and treasure most. Why don't you look to him? Why don't you let him lift you out of the the mire and the pit and pull you up? Lift up your head. That's what he does. If you would look to him as while you're crushed and brokenhearted, he will save you. That's who he's near to. That's who he saves. And one author responds, he says, that there is not happiness finally. There is no peace. There is no joy, except we'll be right with God. Amen. Are you right with God? Is there peace with God? Is there happiness finally? Because we are connected to God. 
If you're always sorrowful and never cheerful, then God can't be your greatest treasure. But if God is your greatest treasure, your exceeding joy, then no matter what's going on, even if you are crushed at times, you won't stay there. He'll pull you out of that. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's faithful to his promises, to his word. And so what wisdom does in Proverbs is it tries to steer us. All right, let's, let's get out of uh, being in sorrow and crushed. Let's move toward this path of cheerfulness, to satisfaction, of joy, of gladness in heart. But also, fear of the Lord produces another one, the last emotion that we'll speak of, and that's confidence. I have to be careful here because we're not talking about confidence in you. We're not talking about self-confidence. He doesn't build our self-confidence. This is confidence in God. You look in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Strong confidence, not flimsy confidence, not flappable confidence, not confidence that just will just go at any breeze that comes along. No, this is strong confidence. This is confidence that little David knew when he walks up to this army and they're chanting against him, saying, like, why don't you come out and fight me? This is a giant. He kills lots of people. And little David creeps up there and he starts thinking, wait a second, like, God delivered me from a bear. He also delivered me from a lion. He's also the Lord of hosts. I think I could take this guy. Like, that's basically what he says. If you look in 1 Samuel 17, he walks up to Goliath and Goliath, this huge, mighty champion, is taunting him as he should, Right? He's a giant. He kills people all the time. That's, that's actually what he does. He's a champion. David is tiny. He doesn't even wear armor. He's coming with, with a sword, with not even a sword. He's got stones and a sling. Like, this is hilarious. And so he taunts him. And here's what David does in response. In chapter 17, verse 45, David said to the Philistine, Oh, you, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. That's pretty good taunting. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, but for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Confidence. Right? Basically what he comes with, he says like, yeah, you got a sword and all that stuff, but I'm with God. And I know that he's the Lord of hosts and I'm with him. So I'm set, right? Confidence. That's what he has. Little David walking up there. He doesn't say I'm strong, but uh, God's the Lord of hosts and I'm with him. And what confidence that this Proverbs is talking about, the wise are thinking of God rightly. They see him as holy. They see him as good. They see him as just. They see him as merciful. They see him as powerful and strong. And they basically just say, I'm with him. So I'm good. There's confidence there. Like, I'm going with him, and if he's going, then I'm going to be fine. Knowing who God is, knowing what he's like, knowing what he's done, produces this kind of confidence. It's confidence in God. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, it says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You see this boldness and confidence in Caleb? You remember Caleb? He came through the, the waters, and he was with Joshua and these others, and remember they sent out spies, the Israelites, as they're trying to take the promised land, they send out spies, and a bunch of them come back and said, like, there's giants in the land, it's a great land, giants are there, so we're, we're doomed, right? And, and Caleb says, no, like, there's giants in the land, and in Numbers 13, he says, like, let's take it immediately. Bold as a lion. Yeah, there are giants there, but we're, did you not just see what God has done? He just pulled us out of Egypt. Like, there's giants there, but like, he's on our side. We're with him. So let's go. Let's go immediately. Who cares how big they are? Like, he does it again when he's 85 years old. He's like, I'm almost as young as I used to be. You know, like, I feel pretty strong still. There's giants still in the land. And Caleb's like, I'm going to go, and maybe God will be with me. He's bold as a lion. Proverbs 23 states this kind of confidence too. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's a pretty big enemy. I'm I'm not going to fear there. Because God is with us. That's confidence in God. That's what Proverbs is talking about. Time after time, God's people are as bold as lions because they trust in their God. And that trust in that God starts ripping their fears apart. There's only one fear that will rule in the people of God, and that's the fear of the Lord. It's a right fear. It's a trust of Him, a love for Him, an intimacy with Him, but a reverential awe of all that He is and all that He can do. And it just rips other fears out of our lives. 
True wisdom produces godly confidence, godly boldness, because true wisdom starts with knowing who God is, fearing Him rightly as He is. And so if godly confidence in us is not present, then what are you looking to for refuge? What are you looking to for rescue in your life? Again, it's revealing something. It's revealing what you love most, what you're looking to most to rescue you and to be your refuge. What are you valuing? What is your confidence showing that you value? Is your confidence in the Lord? And so as we think about these, these four, like we can tell like we are in such need of wisdom to help us rightly control these emotions. Even just these four. We need to restrain some of them. We need to release some of them. We've got all sorts of, of problems. Like some are just flowing when they need to be stopped. And some are stopped when they need to be flowing. And we, just, we need wisdom. And wisdom doesn't ignore the reality of our internal lives and to say, you know, figure it out. And we shouldn't either. We shouldn't ignore it. We should think about it. We should think about it with one another. We need one another here. We should think about our emotions and how they're coming out and how we can think about what we're actually valuing. What's our internal reality? How are we controlling our good and yet fallen emotions? See, what's true is that that many, maybe even here today, are languishing under jealousy. Many are slaves to their anger. Many are crushed in spirit. Many are fearful and without confidence. I mean, just think about it for a while. Look around. Check a social media feed that stirs up anger like that. Like we have confusion and problems. Listen to your own internal thinking. We need wisdom. All of us are struggling at least with one of these in some way, either severely or slightly. Most of us are struggling with all of them in ways we can't even comprehend yet. And so the question then is, is how do we move away from this? How, how do we move to right control of our emotions? How do we do this rightly? How do we walk in wisdom in regards to our emotion? What's the way out? What's the way forward? How do we, how do we move forward in this? Do we just change our emotions? That sounds easy. Let's just do that. It's like, nope, I'm going to change my emotions. Just flip it on a switch and turn off anger, turn on cheerfulness. Like if we could do that, we would. We would love to do that. I would love to do that. But remember this, the emotions aren't meant to be in the driver's seat. They need direction. They need the right placement in our lives. Wisdom, which begins with with fear of the Lord, right? It's this right fear of God, this right trusting of God. And and what does trusting God always lead to? What is Proverbs always pushing us to? Obedience. Always thinking about in every aspect of our life, how can we honor God? How can we live in a way that shows that we, we honor Him as our God, that we want to live in relationship with Him? How do we do that? We obey what He says to do. And so here's a great place with moving forward with your emotions. You don't flip them on and off with a switch. That's not how it happens. Here's a great place to start. Regardless of where your emotions are, trust God, obey God. Just whatever he tells you to do, just do that. Start there. I love this. A couple authors say this, that instead of waiting to feel, we can act to feel. We can make choices and take actions that move us toward God and others in obedience, whether we feel like it at first or not. We can bring the faculty of the will to bear on the emotions. We are not under the lordship of our emotions. We can tell them what to do, and they may not follow us at first, but they're in the car strapped in, and so like we're going in our direction we want to go. Another author says, in other words, if you want to encourage an emotion, act in conformity with it even if you don't initially feel it. (laughs) You don't feel cheerful? Start acting as if you are. God says rejoice. Start rejoicing. Obey and see if that emotion doesn't follow along. It's possible for us to do what these authors have said for the people of God because emotions aren't just created and fallen. They're also redeemed for God's people. Right? We, we, we shouldn't end the story with like created good, fallen, now we need wisdom. No, there was one who came. And he came to redeem us, all of us, every part of us. Emotions aren't to be Lord of our lives. There's only one Lord of lords and he came to buy us back from our sin. He said, you're no longer slaves to that sin anymore. I own you now. I bought you at a price. And so now you get to cheerfully be my subjects. There's one Lord of Lords, and we are subject to Him alone. And all who look to this Lord of Lords, all who look to Jesus in faith, they become new creatures. New creations. They're created, they're fallen, but they're redeemed. And what He does then is He sends His Spirit that takes up residence in us, and it starts doing all sorts of things inside of us. It just starts moving furniture around wherever it chooses. 
right? Oh, that needs to go. You've got to get rid of that. We need to rearrange this. It's got too much problem here. Like It starts doing all this. It starts getting rid of things. It convicts us. Here's something that's rotting your bones. You need to get rid of it or it will destroy you. And it starts producing new life, new desires, new emotions. This is what God does for his people. And so do you want to control your emotions? It's going to start with genuine faith, with trusting in God. With knowing that he's the Lord of lords, that emotions aren't in control. Even I, myself, don't want to be in control. I want Jesus to do that. It's surrendering to him, trusting in him, and letting him take over. So now, as created, fallen, and redeemed people, we don't have to stifle our emotions. We don't have to stuff them in the trunk. And we also know that we don't have to let them drive. And listen to them what they say, and surrender to them all the time. Because we've surrendered to Jesus. Ah. Let's live our lives. Let's let our emotions show that we've surrendered to him alone. He is Lord. Let's pray together. God, emotions are a good gift, and they are really confusing. And so we're so thankful that you're so kind to us to give us some wisdom. And God, I pray that we would have the wisdom to not just hear your word and to think about it, but we'd start putting it into action. That we'd live in a way that would bring you honor and glory because we're not just hearers of your word, but we want to be doers of it as well. God, if that's going to happen... It's not going to be by our own strength. Apart from you, we can't do nothing. So help us abide. Be vitally connected to you that you might produce life in us, change in us, redemption, keep pouring out through us, displayed in our emotions. God, would you help us to rightly kind of identify and think about our emotions and what they're saying that we value and where we're off, would you help us correct And God, where we need to restrain, help us restrain. Where we need your help to release, let us release. Maybe that's now, as we're turning to you, singing praises to you in worship. Maybe we need to release cheerfulness and confidence. Maybe that might change how our faces look and how loud our voices are. God, we want all those things to be under your lordship, and we're going to need your help, so we're asking for it. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.